Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life. My name is Krista Fee, and I will be your host. And today is a very special episode, and this is for multiple reasons. Today, we are recording our 54th interview. This is our one-year anniversary for our 501c3 nonprofit organization, Battle to Be. And this week we have been gifted a 2616 lowrider laser from AP Laser, which is one of the things that we were, that was on our big wish list so that we could do exponentially more next year than we achieved this year. So this year, our ferryman mission took 64 plaques to families of fallen heroes. And next year, our plan is to hand deliver over 400. So we'll be doing our quarterly big ferryman missions all the way across the country. And hopefully each one of those missions, we will be closer to 100 served than our 30 that we managed to do at each of our missions this year. So again, this is a huge week for us, our one-year celebration. And kind of in honor of that, I am bringing to you a guest that takes me back to the origins of my roots. This is a guest who it comes from my background. So, and this is a topic that I don't talk about very often anymore. And it's a really important topic. So though you guys are really used to me bringing you police department and post-traumatic stress stories, Today we're going to talk about human trafficking and child exploitation, and we're going to talk about not only that, but how that career choice affects the officers, the investigators, and those and their families, those who are involved in this specialized work. And a big part of today is going to be giving you guys some statistics that are going to knock you completely for a loop. You're going to be really surprised because I think most people don't know the extent of this problem. Most people don't know or understand just how present it is in the United States. And uh, today I'm bringing you investigator Randall Snyder, who is also author of a fantastic book that is going to help you guys learn even more. And we will make sure that you know where to find him and how to get a hold of that book before we're done today. Hello and welcome. Thank you, Krista. I appreciate you having me on. It's so, so great to have you. I'm really excited to have this conversation because every time I've had a conversation with a, a family, with a mother, or a father who has young children, especially, they have no idea the risks and they have no idea the kinds of things uh, that are risks. So it's really good to get this information out as often and as frequently and intensely as possible. And also to be able to tell your story of traumatic stress and what you're doing to impact others. So let's begin with I always like to begin with childhood. What was what was little Randall like? And did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? So um, I, I knew at a very young age that I wanted to get into law enforcement. My my mom used to joke and tell me stories about um, my 
uh, imaginary friend was the director of the CIA and he lived in my watch. I, I, I was very advanced for my time. I had the watch that I could talk to the director well before uh, Apple watches ever came out. And I would go off on little missions and I would come back and say that I had sa saved the world with the director of the CIA. Um, and it, it, despite uh, what probably should have gotten me some psychological uh, help for that, um, it, it, it really shaped kind of who I wanted to be. And I knew all through growing up that I wanted to get into law enforcement. I wanted to do something to be able to impact my community. And so uh, going up, growing up and going through school, I was taking law enforcement classes. I was looking at different things to um, enhance my ability to get into law enforcement. And so when I finally did, um, it was kind of a dream come true. I didn't realize at 23 getting into this career that I would end up spending the better part of six years as a 14 year old girl online. Um, if, if you had told me that I was going to spend uh, half my career uh, chasing uh, child molesters and pedophiles, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, but it that's kind of where it ended up and turned out. And it was uh, it was an amazing opportunity to learn about um, a crime that when I first got into law enforcement, I didn't even didn't even know was a thing. I mean, I, I, I I'm older than Google and there wasn't uh, the Internet when I was growing up. And and even into the early part of my career, it was not really a, a big deal. So uh, it, it the, the advances in the time that I've been with law enforcement have really been extraordinary. So you specialized in uh, in investigating childhood exploitation. Right. So in um, about halfway through my career in, in 2010, um, I moved into our investigations bureau and I went into our um, persons crimes unit and our persons crimes unit primarily does child crimes. Now we do adult crimes as well. We do um, uh, domestic felony, domestic violence and uh, aggravated assaults, things like that. Um, but the bulk of our investigative uh, time is spent on both child abuse and child sexual abuse. And so with that, um, a lot of what I did was working uh, to protect children. I was on the child abduction response team. Um, I was uh, a domestic violence trainer, but I also became a forensic interviewer where I was conducting the interviews with these juvenile victims so that I could um, better investigate their crimes. And in 2012, I got handed my first uh, Internet Crimes Against Children's case. Uh, and that really kind of set my course from there on out to be able to specialize and focus on uh, children that were being exploited online. And my work, I was, uh, did just the computer forensics side of uh, the task force. So you have a much broader um, experience with that. But when I first started that, um, I had a bachelor's degree in forensics and criminal justice. And, you know, when you're young, you think you're going to go out and save the world. And I was absolutely shocked my first week on the job, just how overwhelming the problem was when we first, you know, get on the computer and you, you set up your profile and you start talking and you just say completely normal things that a teenager would say. You're not even like being sexual or 
or flirting or anything and just say very basic, hey, what's up? You know, kind of normal everyday comments in a chat room and you would have this immense number of people responding and making completely blatant, straight up sexual comments and, and it happens this fast and there is like no shortage in a very short period of time. What was your experience with just seeing the vast number of perpetrators or potential perpetrators that were out there when it's, you first started? It, it, it's overwhelming because um, the, well, first of all, I was on a federal task force for two years. Um, and during that time, that's all I did was internet crimes against children. And so we were getting cyber tips in, um, you know, two, three, four a day, sometimes more than that. Um, there was nine of us in the working group. And for a period of about four months, we were running three search warrants a week. Um, each of us were paired up with another investigator. And so uh, each pair would have a search warrant, one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday, one on Thursday. And we kept up that operational tempo for about four months before we went to the sergeant, just went, boss, we got, we're, we're tired. We, you know, we're waking up at two, three o'clock in the morning to go to these warrants. We're doing them all day. And then we were having to do um, the, the follow-up work. So when we get the computer back from our forensics team to start reviewing, we were sometimes reviewing 10 and 20,000 images over the course of a, a, of a day or two um, you know, I had I had um, predators that that when we got into his computer, they had more than a million images of child exploitive mat materials on their device. And we have to look at every single one of those images, age estimate it, classify it, put it in there. If it's a video, we have to watch the video, not just a little clip. We have to watch the whole video. So if it's a 30 minute video, we're spending 30 minutes of our day watching really horrific stuff. And for that to continue going on as much as it does, like you said, you go into a chat room that's designed for kids. It's, it's, not, it's not supposed to be anything but a bunch of 13, 14-year-old kids. And you say, what's up? And all of a sudden, you got five creeps that are 40 years old. And the first thing they want to do is send you a picture of their genitals and talk dirty to you and have you talk dirty to them knowing based upon your profile and your information that you're a 13, 14 year old girl, um, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, and it, it really uh, is a culture shock to somebody who didn't even barely realize that that world was out there at the time to, oh my God, everybody out there's a pervert. Everybody online is, is a creep that needs to be, needs to be investigated and arrested. Uh, and it, it, it's it's culture shock. Um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children sends out their statistics every week of, uh, you know, how many cases they're receiving that they're disseminating out to law enforcement. And right now they're running on average somewhere between 800,000 and a million cases a week uh, just in the child exploitation. And that doesn't cover the enticement, the trafficking, the, you know, the other categories that they that they run and so i don't think people realize how prevalent it is online and how at risk their children are just as a little 
other shock side note uh, i have a my neighborhood has a community page and one of the mothers on the community page got one of the apps and there's a million different apps you can use to do this but she pulled up one of the neighborhood apps that shows you how many actual registered sex offenders are in your neighborhood and where are they located and just in our neighborhood and our neighborhood we're in texas which is kind of a hot spot uh, our little neighborhood had 34 sex offenders in a six block wow. area so if you guys parents out there that are listening if you think that because you're in a middle class neighborhood or an upper class neighborhood and things look fancy even if you have gates at the door that there is a probability that one of four of your neighbors is uh, at risk for your kids. So if you look at those apps, you can inform yourself a little bit uh, as to your neighborhood's risk and know that those apps are only telling you known offenders. They're not telling you about those who have not been caught yet or who um, didn't get charged or whose charges didn't stick the first or third time around so. and, and at the risk of putting all of these parents in a state of paranoia where they're building hoa unapproved you know walls <laughs> around their property uh with barbed wire and everything um it, like you said that's just the ones that have been caught and convicted um the number that are going you know completely unrecognized um I mean, on average, only about one in nine children who sexually abused reports and outside of the, the unknown creeps in your neighborhood, about 80% of sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation occurs from a family member or a family friend. It's somebody within the, what should be their safe circles. And so don't drop your guard around, uh, you know, family, friends or, or things like that. Um, parents really need to be aware and need to be uh, diligent in who they're talking to, who they're bringing around the house, who their kids are talking to online, making sure that kids' profiles are set to private, that the only people that they're friends with are people they actually legitimately know. Um, and having those hard conversations with kids about not taking inappropriate pictures, not doing the things that have become, unfortunately, very mainstream uh, activities, because that's what's getting kids in trouble. That's what is allowing these predators to continue finding their victims. And the other one I'd like to bring up that is really super interesting, and I think parents don't know, is we always say, know what your kids are doing on the computer, but we don't often talk about know what your kids are doing on their video games. Yeah. And any open chat is a risk factor. Um, there has been a rise in cases on Roblox. There has been a rise in cases on um, the gaming, plat the other gaming platforms, Discord, uh, things like that, where if there's a chat functionality, Predators know that if there's kids there, there's going to be a way for them to find their kids. And excuse me, even when the old Club Penguin was still out there, and Club Penguin's been closed for a couple of years now, that was designed for elementary and, and middle school age kids. That was for, you know, pre-adolescent and adolescent children. 
we were finding adults on there who were using that to prey on children because there's that chat functionality. They can then move them off onto another platform or move them onto text message, whatever the case. And so uh, streaming platforms, online gaming um, is a great way for, for predators to find their victims. So now that we've given parents a little, a little something to think about, and there's tons of information online, uh, you guys can, um, a million different places to look, but Operation Underground Railroad is a nonprofit organization that posts a lot of uh, free videos that you can watch with your kids. They actually teach a free uh, human trafficking awareness course for parents that talks about the different ways that your children may be exploited or trafficked, uh, which these they're kind of the same, but kind of different topics. So uh, if you want to go there, uh, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children also lots and lots of free information for you guys. So if you need more, uh, if you want to look deeper there, and I'm going to guess that your book talks about that also. It does. Um, and while I, I hesitate to throw out any um, specific organizations, I did name a couple that I'm familiar with. The problem is there's there's others out there that are probably doing just as great a job that I may not be aware of. Thorne, I know, is doing uh, great work. The Child Rescue Coalition is doing great work. Uh, Veterans for Child Rescue um, has a special place in my heart. Uh, uh, Craig Sawman Sawyer is out there really working hard to protect kids from, uh, from uh, especially the child trafficking and sex trafficking. And on my website, I also have some links to different places, but um, I'm hoping that what parents do is get just enough interest in this that they go, yeah, let's go check it out. And it doesn't matter what resource you go to, whether it's Operation Underground Railroad, whether it's um, Sheepdog, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? I apologize. Um, Sheep, uh, Bloodhound Sheepdog. I, it, the name was was escaping me. Um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. All of these have great information, and you, they can reference out to other other organizations. But any information you get from any of them is going to give you good information on what to look for, how to protect your kids, what kinds of things to do. I've heard from so many parents that. They don't check their kids' phones and social media because it would be an invasion of their privacy. Yep. Well, parents, if you're not invading your child's privacy, some other creep is. And that creep is doing it for the wrong reasons and with malicious intent. And parents need to be willing to invade their child's cyber privacy for their own protection because there's just too many people out there that are willing to go out and sexually abuse, sexually extort, sexually exploit our children. And if you're not going in there and making sure that your kids are being safe, somebody else is having the conversation and it's from a, a completely different angle that, that is not going to benefit your kids. And kids unprepared, all victims. Right. If you are not, if you're not brave enough to have the conversations because it's embarrassing to you or it's hard, it's difficult, uh, you feel like your children will be uncomfortable, wouldn't you rather them be uncomfortable with a conversation they're having with you than be uncomfortable in a room with a stranger that right. they cannot recover from? 
and you know, um, that there's been a couple of really good videos put out recently over the growing trend of sextortion. And I, don't, I think a lot of parents don't understand what sextortion is, but so many children are out there self-producing the child exploitive materials because they're, they're curious in their sexuality. They're, they're trying to figure out, you know, what, what all of this is. And they're taking these pictures and they're sending them out to somebody that they think is their significant other or, uh, you know, maybe a, a, an interest in something. And when those images go out there, there's no way for them to ever return. There's no way to ever delete them. And so the extorters are taking these, they're catfishing these kids, preying on their naivety, preying on their inability to differentiate whether this person is real or not. They're obtaining these images and then they're exploiting and extorting them for additional images. Um, we had a, a case recently uh, locally where a kid, because he was being extorted by the individual who had one of his um, pictures, um, got this kid to drain his parents' bank accounts and credit cards accounts and extorted over $40,000 before it was discovered and reported to law enforcement all because this kid made one stupid choice in taking one inappropriate picture. Th that's that's a, a minor situation compared to the young lady that I dealt with who was extorted for a period of almost three years and has hundreds of pictures and videos out there. And her exploiter literally said, I'm going to make your name Googleable," and did um, if she didn't continue to produce for him. Fortunately, that individual was was located uh, with the assistance of Homeland Security. That individual has been extradited and brought to Arizona, and he's doing, I believe, 20 years federal time. Um, but he had over 100 victims worldwide, only 80 of which so far have been identified. And those pictures, those images can never be taken back. And so many kids nowadays are taking that situation where they're being extorted, they're being exploited, and they are taking it to a, a, a fatal level where they're now committing suicide rather than deal with the, the fallout and the consequences. And so parents need to understand how severe this is and how uh, easily this can escalate from somebody sending a picture to what they think is their girlfriend or boyfriend from class and having it have fatal results. So a little shift gears, how can, how can we protect those who are on our teams? How can we protect those who are in this, having to watch these videos, having to see these, these photographs? This is, this is traumatizing. This is a form of occupational traumatic stress. So how do we protect our, our crisis interventionists, basically, our investigators, if, so that they don't suffer? I, I think that there's a couple of different ways that that can be done, because like you said, this is traumatic. Nobody wants to look at these kinds of materials unless you're one of the bad guys. Um, and, and so having to be forced to look at this day in and day out takes its toll. Um, and I, I recently wrote an article um, about how doing this kind of work is kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. because one video one image may not necessarily cause a, a traumatic response but over 
days, weeks, months, years of seeing this, the repetitive traumas that build up um, end up causing a, a lot of problems. And there are some really good therapies out there. There's a lot of good interventions out there. Um, there are ways for investigators themselves to minimize the impact. Uh, one of the things that we always did was we never looked at images in the last hour of our shift. Last hour of our shift is decompression time. It's get it all out of your head. We would play Angry Birds. We would play, you know, Candy Crush. We would watch television. We would do anything other than focusing on the job to help, you know, decompress and, and, and delete that stuff. Um, we had regular uh, sessions where we would have communications with our, our victim coordinator um, or our, our peer support team and help unload, unburden some of that. Um, EMDR is an amazing process. If you've never heard of EMDR or if you're curious about the concept of EMDR, there's some really great programs out there that are either solely based on EMDR or a combination of EMDR and other biofeedbacks that can help your brain process it. We find that as our brain gets filled up with these traumatic images and incidents, um, we sometimes have trouble processing them. And if we're not getting the good REM sleep that our brain needs to download that, dump it and put it into the right uh, containers in our brain, it gets stuck and we can't get rid of it. EMDR forces the brain into a REMS-like state that helps your brain process that even though you're awake. There's other biofeedback programs that do similar things. The biggest thing I think that we have to do though, uh, above and beyond all the therapies, is be there for one another. Um, make sure that we're reaching out to our coworkers, make sure that we're reaching out to our peers, having those conversations, being able to be vulnerable and get past the stigma in law enforcement of, I'm tough, I can muscle through this. I'm, you know, if I say that I, this upset me, I'm a wimp or I'm a whatever, because part of the PTS that I ended up with was based upon the feeling of isolation and knowing that I was going in every day and putting on the brave face and acting like this stuff wasn't, wasn't hurting me and wasn't impacting me negatively and not knowing if the other guys in my squad were doing the same thing. Are they impacted too? Are they having problems and they're putting on a brave face or is there something wrong with me? Am I screwed up because this is hurting me? And I wasn't having those conversations. And once I started having those conversations with my peers and finding out that, man, I'm not the only one who's getting messed up by this. I'm not the only one who's going home at night and feeling pretty crummy. Um, that feeling of isolation went away and just the ability to unload that and, and share that um, had an amazing effect in being able to help get rid of it. And then frankly, years and years of therapy <laughs> um, has, has really helped, uh, helped me talk it out and kind of unload a lot of that baggage that built up over, over the years of doing this. 10 years of child abuse and exploitation work um, it ends up creating a, a lot of baggage. And, and if you're not willing to talk about it and, and recognize that your feelings are okay and that it's okay to not be okay and to work on those issues, um, you're just going to let it build up until you, until you can't handle it anymore. And it's, it's really sad that the 
suicide rate in law enforcement is as high as it is because we let the traumas of the of the job and every day build up instead of getting it out there. Now, I don't want to go into great detail, but I do want to clarify for our viewers um, who are unfamiliar with what this is, what this concept, what you're investigating. These are not sometimes they're just pictures of of nudity. But we're talking about crimes against children. We're talking about photographs of physical abuse. We're talking about that it, it is so much beyond selfies at times. So your exposure is not just to nude children, but to violence against children and sometimes fatal violence against children. These are very serious criminals. Um, at times so it, it's a it's a spectrum but but this is not just oh you know there's another picture of a half-dressed kid it's right. so much more than that it, it's so much more than just pictures because if you think about it the the sexual abuse or physical abuse of a child is a criminal act so what we're looking at is not just a picture this is a crime scene photo just like what we would take if we went to go uh, to a homicide and document a homicide we are obtaining photographic evidence of a child being sexually abused um, or physically abused. Uh, and the, the beyond just the immediate trauma that occurred to that child in that sexual abuse, you have the long-term trauma that's occurring because that photograph is out there and it's being shared online with hundreds and thousands of people every day. So if you took the last sexual experience that you had with your significant other and you put it up on the jumbotron of the Super Bowl for millions of people to see, and not only for those millions of people to see, but in the broadcast of that on the television for people to be able to record it and rewatch it and resend it over and over and over and over and over, how traumatic would that be? And that was probably a pleasurable experience because that was with your significant other. That was something that you were consenting to. Now add to it the fact that those children can't consent. It's not a pleasurable act because it's against their will. It's being forced upon them. It's abusive. It's oftentimes painful. It's oftentimes, uh, uh, you know, physically traumatic above and beyond the emotional trauma. And you have all of that. Not to mention the fact that a lot of people think child exploitation, you think about these kids taking selfies, you think, oh, they're teenagers, they're in high school, they're, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Krista, I've seen images of children so young that the umbilical cord has not detached yet, who are being sexually penetrated by an adult male. And so this is not just teenagers, this is kids from infancy on up who are being raped by adults for the sexual gratification of other adults and having those broadcast on the internet for all eternity and for any person to see. And so I, I, I hate to, I hate to get that blunt about it. I hate to be uh, put it in those terms, but really for, for people to understand the severity of what this is and how that impacts those of us who conduct these investigations, you have to put it into those terms because 
sugarcoating it with with some of the language that's used in the laws and some of the language that's used in the media um, really is a disservice to all of those victims who are being impacted by this and who have residual impact for years and years after the abuse ends because they know those images are out there. There's nothing they can do to stop people from continuing to download them, view them, enjoy them. In some cases, victims have reported being contacted by the people who uh, who, who go out and search out this content and try to re-victimize them. And the investigators that are out there having to relive these images over and over and over, day in and day out for years of their their career uh, in the attempt to try and rescue these kids from their abuse and hold their abusers accountable. Thank you. I know I know I pushed you into a little bit more uh, detail, but I feel like it's really important for people to recognize this is more than they know. Right. I think it's really important for them to recognize that it's not an incident that happens once and then everything is fine afterwards and, oh, you know, we'll just get some therapy and my kid will be okay. This can be years of abuse. This can be, it's just so much more than you know. So please do, um, if you're curious at all and if you if you are listening and you're like, oh my gosh, I never even knew, please do a little bit of research. Please don't, like you said, don't scare yourself. It, it's something that happens. You should be aware of it. Your children should be aware of it. They can protect themselves when they know what they're looking for, when they know what the risks are, when they know what kind of ways people will come at them. If they're prepared for it, they can combat that. If they're not prepared for it, they will fall victim to that. Right. So you have a lot of power as parents and teenagers that might be listening. You also have a lot of power. So research for yourself, protect yourself because it's, it's up to you to do that. And you can do that. There is lots of resources for you. And talking about you as an investigator and your experience, did you, what was your experience with your coworkers and with your superiors when you realized that you were struggling with some post-traumatic stress? I, I'm very fortunate that the agency I work for is um, understanding of the, the stresses. When, when I have everybody from the sheriff on down coming into my office, well, let, let me rephrase. They wouldn't come into my office. They would stop at the door frame because they never knew what was going to be on my computer. When they recognize that they don't even want to walk into my office because of what they might see that I they know I am viewing, um, they recognize how horrific it is. And when everybody from the sheriff on down is saying, man, I don't know how you do that. I can't, I can't understand how you can deal with that. I don't know how you can put up with that. When I came out, to my sergeant and said, you know, one day I said, I, I can't, I can't handle this anymore. This is having an impact on me. All of them were like, yep, I get it. We, it, it was a matter of time. We, we were expecting it. It took longer than we expected. And I said, well, that's, that's my stupid pride more than anything, but that's, they, they understood. And they've been very helpful in making sure that I have uh, the support that I need, that I have access to the resources that I need. Um, to making sure that I'm uh, able to get what I need to be able to uh, to overcome it. Now, 
I never talked about how dark it got. I never told my coworkers at the time how bad it was because I was always afraid. I was afraid of being ostracized. I was afraid of having my coworkers look at me in the hallway and think that I was crazy. I was afraid of, you know, a fitness for duty that they were going to then take my badge and gun and say that I couldn't be a cop anymore. It's all I'd ever been. It's all I ever wanted to be. Um, but I, I had to be honest with myself and I had to be honest um, in the scheme of things. And so as part of my um, process in unloading this, um, my counselor said, you know, journal, journal, journal. Well, I didn't journal. I'm not a, I'm not a journal guy. But I did sit down and write my story and write my book as a way to unload. And in that, I had to talk about the fact that I was raising three kids while I was working all of this. I have two young daughters that were um, very young at the time that I was working these cases. And there were times where I would call my wife on the way home from the office and say, I, I can't see the girls tonight. I can't help with bath time. I can't help with bedtime because I had seen images in the course of my duties that were too close to what my girls look like that that would cause those flashbacks. Um, I didn't talk to my supervisors about the fact that I would come home at night and despite all of the things that I was doing to try and prevent it, I was bringing those images home and I would blink and a new image would pop up and I would try to close my eyes to go to sleep and the images would just replay in my head. And I got to a point where I was, I was knocking back um, way more of Tennessee's best than I absolutely should have just because I needed that relief. I needed something to forcibly close my eyes that wouldn't cause those, those images to reappear. Um, and it's taken a while to get past that and to work past um, the, the, the damage from that. Um, but my agency was very good in helping me deal with what I would have let them know um, I was going through um, and, and even since then have been still been very supportive in making opportunities available for me to, to learn new techniques and new uh, opportunities to, to continue on with uh, various therapies and things like that. And I'm actually currently going through uh, another brain scan type of therapy um, to, to help with, you know, continuing to process the, millions of images so you technically retired <laughs> i i technically retired uh i failed at retirement um so as i was uh, working through internet crimes i was also teaching at arizona state university and when i retired my goal was to continue teaching at asu because my oldest child had recently graduated from high school and i didn't want to pay for college and so by working at the university, he would get to go to college for free. Uh, thankfully, he has decided that he's not um, interested in going to university right now because a year and a half after I retired, the university decided that uh, they wanted to go in another direction and they were repurposing my, uh, my salary. And so I left the university and um, came back to the sheriff's office where I'm now doing background investigations, which is so much nicer. I get to interview people that are nice people that want to have a job, not horrible people that want to do bad things to children. So I, I get to still investigate without having the uh, the the darkness of uh, doing the, the crimes that I was uh, investigating before. 
So those of you out here that have been following us for a while, you know the origination story already of Battle to Be. Um, I only made it two years uh, working in that position, seeing all of that. Um, and what shifted gears for me, what got me out of that was an officer on our team committing suicide after a failed retrieval of, of some kids. So a, a procedure went sideways um, and he actually took his own life in the parking lot um, with his service weapon. And the, in that moment, I had this epiphany that nobody knew. Nobody knew that he was struggling. Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Like it went from, you know, see y'all later to never see you again in the blink of an eye and nobody expected it. Nobody saw it on him. So, and when we're pulling kids out, we know they have resources. We know we're taking them to get help. We know that they're going to have education and they're going to have financial support and that there's a million organizations to back them. But at that point in time, I realized that there was no one and nothing for us. There was no one and nothing for our team. And we didn't even dare we didn't even dare at the end of the night to look at each other and say, well, that was shitty. Well, that was a rough one. You know, oh, wow, that was hard. You know, I need to take a breath. We didn't even say that to each other. It was, you know, later See and more. go get a couple beers. Right. And, and that's normal. That's after work stuff. Go get a couple beers, you know, or more. Um, and then, <laughs> and then start again tomorrow. But nobody ever says, wow, that hurt. Wow, that was rough. You know, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm struggling with this. It just wasn't done. It wasn't acceptable. So instead of being able to say that, that was the outcome. So that was where I switched gears and was like, something has to be done. We have to change this. We have to create a system that supports our well-being, that supports us connecting and communicating and having these human conversations on the understanding that during the work, it's okay to put those emotions aside. We have to be focused and efficient and, and together. We can't just always be emotional humans. It doesn't work that way. You can't be the hero and still feel all that in the moment, but we also have to be taught how to flip that switch at the end of the night still with our coworkers and say, okay, now we're not in that mode. Now we're not responding to these. Let's be human together and connect and debrief and talk about what our day held and uh, come to a process of going from work mode to human mode to home mode. And like you had said, you know, you guys shutting down and playing video games. Well, that's, that's a start but getting that natural conversation and openness and connected and team and, and family, because we're a family that is so challenging to break that stigma and, and create that environment where when we need each other, we can be there. And, and even, you know, what I saw was even when we did go, Oh, that was horrible or man, that was a rough one. That was pretty much the extent of it. We didn't, we didn't do the deep dive. We didn't do the 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 full, you know, decompression and 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 talk about how it made us feel and everything else. It was man, that that sucked. All right, see you tomorrow. 
Um, we were fortunate um, toward the end of my time with the task force that the task force got a uh, dual purpose therapy dog. And so not only was she in there to uh, provide therapy and support for the victims, um, but being in the office every day, she was there for our support and therapy as well. And it's really hard to be having a bad day and have this beautiful uh, golden labradoodle come over and nudge you for, you know, for pets and not turn and pet and feel some of that stress leave. Um, but she, the great thing was her dual purpose was also she was uh, electronic sniffing dog. So we could take her to search warrants and she would help us find some of the electronic evidence. Um, but once I left the task force, that wasn't, wasn't available anymore. And so, like you said, we really have to be more cognizant of having those discussions, having those communications within our units, within our agencies to say, you know, this, this was really tough. I'm having a problem dealing with this one. This was a bad day because there were some cases that I went on that didn't really affect me. They may have affected my partner. There were some that affected me that my partner was, was okay with. And so we, you got to be able to continue to have those conversations and get, get all of that out, unpack all of that baggage, or it doesn't, doesn't ever really help. It's interesting you say that. Like it, I think this is another thing that's, that's not understood about post-traumatic stress. The things that stick, the things that get us are not necessarily what one would consider that was the worst case I've ever seen right. or something expected to be traumatic. What it is, is that child looked like my daughter mm -hmm. or, um, it can be a sound trigger. It can be the music in the background was the song that was playing at my wedding. And now this, like, it, it can be something that doesn't make sense on the surface. So the things that get to us, the things that we keep replaying are not necessarily, they're not going to be the same for everybody. And they're not necessarily those, like, I have moments that should haunt me. I have cases I can talk about that are, they were brutal. They were like normal people would say it was disgusting. Like you shouldn't be able to just talk about it. I can see the whole thing in vivid detail with absolutely no emotional stress or, or struggle. And yet there are other ones that pop up. It almost, you also described flashbacks because that's the only word we have. The blink experience that it's not because you're trying to go to sleep necessarily. It's literally when you're wide awake on the back of your eyelids is a moment. Right. And that moment comes complete with all of the sensory experiences that went with it. Your, your chest hurts, your stomach aches, you start to sweat. There's literally, you can smell copper. Like there's this whole intense, like split total hair of a second that you have this full immersion into the experience. And that's, as you say, because the, the memory is not processed properly. And what creates that isn't necessarily that what you saw was the worst case of your life or it's not predictable. Right. We don't know what's going to cause that. What's going to stick? What's going to bother us? And what triggers me may not trigger you. It, you know, we've been to some pretty horrible incidents where everybody on the team was like, oh, that was bad. Other people bounced back faster. Um, we had one of the members of our team who had lost a child 
And so there were certain situations where that team member, something could remind him of that child. And it was much more traumatic to him than it was to any of us that hadn't gone through that experience. You know, I had two young daughters at the time um, that were growing up and they were still in the needing help at bedtime phase and needing help in bath time phase and stuff like that. And so, whereas certain images wouldn't have a problem, the other ones that were just enough to remind me of my girls um, were really traumatic. And so uh, it, it's recognizing your own limitations and boundaries and being comfortable in saying, I got to put this away. This one impacted me. It's time to find something else. It's time to do something else. It's time to maybe hand this case off if you can. Um, if you have a partner, if you have another investigator that's doing it, to be able to uh, avoid that additional trauma and recognizing when that trauma is likely to come. Um, toward the end of my career, um, I was at the I was at the stage in my career where I was training up my replacement. I knew when my end date was, it was it was imminent. Um, and my oldest daughter called me at work one day and said, "Daddy, my friend needs your help." And her friend had been victimized by another teenager, um, and I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it, um, and I immediately handed that off to my uh, to my trainee and said. This one's yours, man. You you get to deal with this one because this one hits way too close to home for me. Not only is there the, the potential um, risk that uh, somebody's going to say that uh, I did something inappropriate because it was my daughter's friend, stuff like that. But at the same time, um, I didn't want it hitting that close to home, especially that close to my retirement where I'm trying to unpack all of that and get be done. Um, and so you have to be aware of what traumas you have in your past, what triggers you might have, and be willing to uh, to work with those and, and recognize those so that you can reach out for the help when you need it. So who is your book for and how can we get it? My book is for every parent out there. Um, and I recognize that not every parent is going to want to dive into the world of internet crimes against children. Um, but my hope is that um, my book, Cyber Creeps, um, is something that parents would be willing to look at and understand and realize that this is what's out there. And while I don't go into the, the gory detail, I provide enough detail about the cases and the offenders that hopefully most parents will take that extra time to have that conversation with their kid, to check their cell phone, to see what their kids are doing, to find out who they're being friends with, both online and offline, um, so that they can be more careful and, and be able to protect their kids and, and ultimately allow less kids to be victimized. Um, it's available on Amazon in both a Kindle format and a paperback format. Um, but I also have my website that will link over to the Amazon um, that has a bunch of different resources. Like you said, Operation Underground Railroad, uh, Bloodhound Sheepdog, uh, Thorn, um, the Child Rescue Coalition, NICMIC. I have links to all of those places where you can go and find additional resources and education to be able to help educate yourself and help protect your kids. And then there's also a page about mental wellness. If anybody watching is 
an LEO or a firefighter or a, a paramedic or a military that wants help dealing with PTS, dealing with traumatic issues. If, if you've done this kind of work and you want to know where to reach out to, um, I have links to other resources on my website to say it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to ask for that help. It's better that you ask for that help than to fight these battles alone because it's like we don't go to domestics by ourselves. We don't go to hot calls by ourselves. Firefighters don't rush into burning buildings by themselves. You work as a team. The blue line's a team, the red line's a team, military's a team. We're not alone in fighting these battles that result from our work. And so we have to have that team mentality when we're dealing with the traumas that come from doing the work. And so um, my hope is that every parent, every caregiver, every guardian of a child wants to learn more so that they can better protect their kids because the numbers are going up, the number of predators are, are going up, the number of cases are going up. And that just means there's that many more people out there targeting your children online when you're handing them that device and, and walking away. I'm so thankful that we got to have you here today. And is there anything you wanna close with? Anything that you forgot that you think is important? You know, the only thing that I think is just, um, you know, watch your kids. Uh, in Arizona, they say, watch your kids around water because of the number of child drownings. Watch your kids around the internet because that's worldwide and there's a lot more people looking for them online than there are uh, at a swimming pool. I think that every parent needs to educate themselves on what their kids are doing so that they can protect them. You want to protect them from the sex offenders in your in your neighborhood. You want to protect them from putting a, 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 a penny in an electric socket. Protect them from the, the internet because that's just as dangerous. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Krista. Thank you so much for being here with us on this, our, I believe it's our 54th episode and our one year anniversary. And again, I just want to shout out AP Laser for their donation that is going to do so much for us. And as I, as I post this episode on Anchor, know that there will be a button below that you can support our podcast if you want to see us keep being able to provide this service for you for free. And you can also go to battletobe.org if you would like to make a donation to our 501c3 nonprofit organization. And I will be putting uh, Randall's link on our uh, canine page on our children's program so parents can have access to that. But I'm also going to put his information on our battletobe.org resources page so that everyone can have access to it. So again, if you want to follow up with him, his book is available on Amazon. We're going to post those links on the podcast, and I'm also going to post those links on our website. He's a resource that you guys uh, can totally make use of. So again, thank you so much for supporting Battle to Be, and I will see you guys all later. <laughs>